Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I remember that first semester that I was at university so, so many years ago, and it felt incredibly overwhelming. So many new people, new routines, just new everything. Now, anyone who has done that they knows it's very difficult to establish a sense of belonging. It's kind of like when you first go to high school too, right? There's a lot of anxiety involved. So it's interesting reading about how some students today are making this adjustment. They're actually doing it by reading, but it's what they are reading that we are going to talk about this morning. It's called Dark Literature, and joining us to talk about it is Karen Gentry, Professor and Vice Chancellor of Design and Social Sciences at Northumbria University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, thank you for having me. um, What is Dark Literature? So dark academia um, is started as a social media aesthetic in about 2015, where it really romanticizes in a gothic way university life. So kind of gothic architecture, misty skies, wet cobblestone, leather and tweed and candlelight. Um, but it builds upon a literary tradition of, um, of, of gothic novels set at the university. So Donna Tartt's classic, The Secret History, really exemplifies dark academia in many ways. What a perfect choice you just had there. I was wondering why that book was suddenly so popular again, because I read it years and years ago, and I have yeah. an 18-year-old niece who asked me if she could borrow it this year, and I thought, really? Okay, why? So there clearly is a genre of this then, Karen. Yes, and a, and a growing genre. I mean, I think the secret history could even harken back to Brideshead Revisited to some extent. But in the past oh, five, six, seven years, we've just seen an explosion of dark academic books. Um, and I can't read them fast enough. I love them. They're <laughs> really entertaining, fun reads. Can you give us an idea of what some of the themes are then? What links these? Uh, yeah, so... Often it is that they're set at elite universities and colleges, um, and the main character is often someone who comes from a background where they're concerned about fitting in, whether you know it's a woman, a person of color coming from a lower socioeconomic background. They have the sense, the concern, a really deep anxiety that they're never going to quite fit in, and yet through the course of the novel, they find a really amazing and intense friendship group that helps them get through uh, some really significant challenges. And so why do you think students seem to relate to it so well? Well, I think, one, there's kind of a a nostalgia element to it, which um, is both good and bad. I think we've also got the Harry Potter generation that's grown up and identifies deeply Right, exactly. It really kind of captures, especially the the aesthetic sense of the movies. Um, And then that 
they're always, you know, it's a gothic novel at its heart. And so there are always mysteries to be resolved. And that right, captures the imagination and people want to see what that outcome is and, and how people get through that mystery. Do you think, Karen, that it's also a coping mechanism for students as well, kind of putting themselves in the center of a dramatic story? Yeah, I mean, novels are always about building empathy, right? And right, if we take from To Kill a Mockingbird, we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. You know, people who are worried about going to university and fitting in and, and when haven't we worried about belonging um, as humans, that they get to go kind of experience and, and live it, but see someone mostly may get through it. Um, and, and so there's a sense of a, of a hope or a redemption arc, potentially. So has this always been the case, do you think, or is this something new that students are doing to establish themselves at post-secondary? You know, I I think that's a great question. I haven't seen the research on it. Um, I am a theorist, kind of a political theorist by training. And so I'm kind of theorizing what is the role of dark academia right now. And I'm and I think it has a place for students. I think it has a place for university staff to really try to understand what are the challenges of of, of students going to university, that sense of belonging, what are the challenges that staff are facing, what are the challenges that administrators are facing, and how, do, how does dark academia help us make sense of them? So I'm not, I can't totally answer your question, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's a good one. It also tells us a lot about the impact of social media on reading, doesn't it? We always thought social media would be the end of books, but it's almost been the opposite of that, particularly with TikTok. Like, there's a whole yes. section at bookstores now that just having to do with books that are featured on TikTok. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I have those same conversations with my nieces, right, about what they've seen highlighted on TikTok or on Instagram and how that's driving their choice. And I think it's that aesthetic, right? We are we're visually oriented people. We see that on Instagram or TikTok in our filter, and we want to know what that's what the story is behind it. And so then you get to go read that book that gives you gives you a way of living it, right? Not just kind of witnessing it, say from afar. Is this a whole new way then of of marketing? Is this a creation of a new genre of literature? Do you think? Oh. Absolutely. I think we're already there. I think we're already in the new genre. Um, and and I, I think there's, there's no end in sight. And again, I mean, I think the list has grown from, I would say, maybe kind of what I might count as five in 2015 to a good 15, 20. Um, and then I, you know, that we have related um, books in, in the field where, like I talk about um, in a recent article, I look at Babel. Um, it's not quite dark academia. It's not quite gothic. There's a lot of, it's speculative fiction, but it feeds into those same themes. Um, we see the campus novel, right, just set at a university and, and, and how we understand university life through that. But dark academia kind of um, is just skyrocketing. That's amazing. So it's kind of nice, isn't it, Karen, to see that that's, that is, the students have found a way to cope and it is by reading. Yes. Yeah, it is. And hopefully a way of, of attracting more people into the university when we know there's 
concern about what what does it add to people's lives when we know it adds a great deal. It certainly does. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and talking about that today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. That's Karen Gentry. Now, Karen is the professor and vice chancellor of design and social sciences at Northumbria talking about uh, what's called uh, dark academia or dark literature. It sounds so foreboding when you say that, right? But it's a whole new genre of literature or of reading. And it's this idea of this adjustment period that young people go through when they go off to university, trying to find that sense of belonging. And they're kind of they're, they're reading about it. It's a genre that romanticizes university life. It's got gothic themes and mysterious elements, so it, can, it, it makes it feel more relatable to people, perhaps makes students feel more like they're at the center of their own story. And it's, it's an increasingly popular genre, too. And if you've read Donna Tartt's The Secret History, then you know exactly what we're talking about here. It's a very popular book, but it's not new by any stretch of the imagination. It's you know more than 10 years old at this point, but it is certainly enjoying a resurgence out there. I love talking about books just in general and the fact that something like this can be brand new and created and popular. I think it's just, it's so cool to see that happen. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. Little known fact about Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, he loves Anne Murray. So that was just for him. Good morning, Rob. <laughs> Good morning. It's really starting Thursday out with a bang here. Well, you know, we don't have many days left because Vaughn is back next week. So we got to really have some fun with you while we can. That's okay, right? No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I like it. I we like love it. Anne Murray. People uh, out of bed. They're Absolutely. Like you, like you, because this is all new for you getting up this early in the morning. I have done pretty well, I think, with the exception of one day uh, on uh, on being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for talk politics this oh, early in the morning. Must have been a day when I wasn't here because I certainly don't remember that. Uh, so let's okay, talk good. some politics because you were in the middle of things yesterday. I was following along on social media there. Uh, you went to the protest that was happening at the legislature and it sounded like, uh, just like in many other cities in Vancouver, uh, it got uh, pretty loud. It did, yeah. I mean, there's uh, more than 2,000 people there. I would say that the uh, folks who are in favor of the SOGI curriculum, the counter-protesters, as they were called, outnumbered, uh, maybe even two to one, the actual anti-SOGI protesters. And the protest started at noon. And when I left, uh, after doing my nightly Czech TV hits around 6.30, it was still going on. And it had kind of devolved into the... Um, counter-protesters sticking around and forming a circle around the anti-Soji protesters. There's sort of a remaining amount, a small number of them who, who didn't want to leave. And it was a standoff over who was going to leave first. And they were chanting back and forth at each other. And the police had formed a kind of inner circle to uh, to keep the two sides from coming to blows. And uh, that ha- that was going on hour six <laughs> when I left. And I don't think that happened at every at many other uh, protest sites, but uh, it was um, 
it was an interesting experience. Uh, there's certainly some people who tried to talk about the issue and what SOGI actually is. And you and I went into what the SOGI curriculum actually is yesterday and how it's not pornography and it's not a number of things that that people seem to kind of perhaps view it as because a lot of this comes from the United States and the far right and works its way up here. But um, I don't think anyone came to any type of consensus at a, at a big protest like that. And it thankfully was not violent. So that was, mm-hmm. that was pretty good. Yeah, that part of it was pretty good. Let, let's talk about the political reaction to this, because obviously a lot of politicians were talking about this yesterday. Well, all the politicians uh, who were asked of uh, the main three parties, so the NDP, BC United, and the Greens, came out and denounced the protest. And what was interesting yesterday is that one politician decided to go the other route, and that is BC Conservative leader John Rustad, who put out a statement yesterday just before the protest started saying he would scrap Soji if he formed government. Now, you can debate the likelihood of the BC Conservatives with two MLAs forming government and implementing this policy. Who knows? I mean, they're rising in the polls. Um, but I think the impact of a party like that making this policy position is that uh, potentially, you know, if we end up in another kind of really close election like 2017, when you have now the Greens, the Conservatives, the uh, NDP and United all kind of splitting votes everywhere, that these are the kind of policies that end up on the table uh, as negotiating points from the Conservatives for, you know, votes in certain things. So that's why, you know, you keep it in mind. He wants the SOGI policy replaced with a zero-tolerance anti-bullying ban, which I think, to be honest with you, we have That's right what I was now. just going to say. Like, don't we have yeah. that? Already? Isn't that part think, of the same I, I, curriculum? I don't think we have a mild-tolerance uh, anti-bullying ban or a, or a yeah. wide-tolerance. But, and I don't know how that's going to be defined. But his his point in talking to him is that bullying needs to be tackled. And Soji has become very divisive and very dividing and, and very fraught. And it should be eliminated. Now, John Rastad was at the BC Liberal government cabinet table as a minister in 2016 when this was brought in. And he says he didn't really understand the significance of it at the time. Uh, and so he wasn't paying that close attention at the cabinet table? Is that what he's saying? Well, he wasn't the minister, he says, and he got a briefing from the education minister and thought it was anti-bullying and doesn't think it's, fa- he thinks it's failed over the years um, and that it should be, you should get rid of it. He inserted some other promises in with the end of Soji platform, more transparency on education, which I I think every party uh, kind of agrees with, but their point there is that um, some parents at the protest yesterday felt like things were being hidden from them, which is not in the SOGI curriculum, but is a debate in other provinces on the issue of pronoun use and whether parents should be told and uh, some maritime provinces uh, tackling that. He wants more private washrooms, fewer gender neutral washrooms so that, you know, children born male go to the male washrooms uh, and that, uh, he calls it a safety issue for women, uh, and uh, he wants a ban again on trans women competing in women's sports, saying it's biologically unfair. That was a by-election issue in June uh, in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant that didn't but go over. I was just going to so say, long. it didn't work in that particular riding. So he really no. chose, like, he thought yesterday was a good day to be talking about this stuff? Yeah, I think he put he's put it together as a kind of uh, sort of platform, I think, for people who are concerned about these issues. Because you did hear, like a lot of people who showed up at the protest yesterday, didn't. some of them were talking about Soji, other of them were talking about washrooms, and they were talking about 
other things. And so he's put these together to, to try and address those folks. He's the only party leader saying these things. They are, I would call, more extreme stances than the federal conservative party, which is not affiliated, but yesterday told its MPs to just basically not say very much about this at all. Uh, and uh, he believes that this group of voters uh, need, will, you know, needs a voice and that they need a choice and that the other parties aren't serving this. And so uh, he is going to step up and do that. And I guess the calculation is if they show up in significant numbers, and this is some of the Freedom Convoy, some of the anti-vax, some of the sort of groups coming out that they form a political block that could rival, you know, the labor movement or the business movement or the environmental movement that fuels the other parties. So we will see hmm. about that. But he is staking a ground. And he continue, when you talk to John Rossett, he says he wants to be a party that appeals to people who have, uh, don't see themselves reflected in the other parties. So I guess it's going to make it makes sense he takes these stances yeah. when other parties don't. Rob, there's also this Union of BC Municipalities convention. Now, it's, we're getting to that time of the week. Are we going to be hearing from the opposition leader and the premier, right, towards the end of the week? Yeah, we do hear from Kevin Falcon, BC United leader today, and then uh, Premier David Eby yesterday, and uh, sorry, tomorrow, and yesterday was the BC Greens. So, uh, you know, not UBCM used to be a place where political leaders made big announcements. Uh, it's possible Falcon kind of says something as part of his continuing to roll out his platform. Um, but uh, we will see. Uh, in the meantime, the UBCM uh, delegates from across the province yesterday were talking about decriminalization and passed three resolutions on this. And they essentially boil down to telling the provincial government to expand those decrim zones that we've been talking about from beyond the kind of current uh, locations, the new proposed locations of playgrounds and skate parks and into parks and other places. And then more treatment and more funding and kind of step up and, uh, and that frustration that we've known municipalities have for quite a long time about open drug use uh, in their public places. And so those resolutions, not not unanimous, well, some of them were unanimous, but they, they did spark quite a bit of debate yesterday, but they, they all still passed. Right. There were three different resolutions, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and so I think the more contentious one is the one about sort of, um, you know, expanding the decriminalization zone, uh, the, the exemption zone, and that, um, you know, the proposal is to go to where children gather around uh, parks and bus stops and beaches and park spaces. And right now, the province is only considering expanding uh, the decrim exemption zone to 15 meters from a play structure or a wading pool or a skate park. And so municipalities are saying we need more than that. I think it's actually Kamloops that is uh, on its own kind of thinking of expanding to 100 meters. Uh, so the around playgrounds and beaches and things like that. And, and it has been a question of the premier. Where did you come up with 15 meters from? Uh, he has said he's got some more legislation coming. So we'll see. But clearly, I think... And this was expressed, too, on Monday with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about decrim, a frustration from especially kind of smaller town mayors in some cases. I know there was a Smithers counselor who said, yeah, decrim is important, but like we have entire communities to consider uh, with this. And, uh, you know, others who've described it as kind of a social experiment that's tearing communities apart. Uh, and then there's the supporters, too, who say, look, like we can't get couldn't get police to arrest 
uh, people before anyways. So whether it's decrim or not is, is kind of irrelevant. But I think what the sum total for the provincial government is, again, that this was not rolled out well. It has not been communicated well. And there are problems with decrim that you see Premier Eby trying to address now. And that the NDP is playing catch up on this and they, their solutions don't seem to go far enough yet for community leaders. And so that is, I think that's the takeaway for the provincial government as they look to bring in some uh, legislation on that this fall. Right. They've certainly gotten an earful this week from municipalities, haven't they? That's part of UBCM, I think, I is, guess, that, yeah. is that when you unite together, you know, um, you provide a much stronger lobbying voice than just the individual council of Smithers or wherever. And so these resolutions that pass carry more weight. Everyone gets meetings with different ministers. Uh, it's like I've called it before, like speed dating, where there's just me- meetings after meetings after meetings. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a chance to give the provincial government an earful. And whether the government takes it or not is the question. And that always is kind of the interesting part to observe is that some governments ignore UBCM mostly. This government has done a, a pretty good job consulting uh, UBCM and, and other leaders, but it doesn't always hit the mark. And uh, and we're seeing that with Decrim. What do you think, if there was a consensus issue at UBCM, what do you think it was? Was it public safety? Has it been housing? What is it? Well, it's not, I mean, even housing is a, is a challenge, right? Because there's, there are municipalities that feel like they're kind of, you know, operating the best they can and still getting picked on by the province when it comes to uh, speeding up housing approvals and some that, that feel it's, that's not the right way to push municipalities aside. So I think everyone agrees on the problems. The overdose crisis is an immense problem, a tragic problem. The housing affordability crisis is a problem. Uh, healthcare is a problem. I think probably you get more agreement on healthcare than anything else, which is that um, there's not enough of it, especially in rural BC, and that these closures that we see at different hospitals are are really devastating communities because they lose their only access to emergency care and they have to drive hours away. That's pretty clear cut, uh, and and there's you know that's that falls on the province to to do better. But the other issues become very. Um, difficult to to kind of hash out and, and difficult to sort of figure out the right solution. And the problem is easy, but the solution is is difficult, as as any governing party will tell you. Very true. Uh, Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, 30 earthquakes seems like a lot, doesn't it? Well, it's what BC experienced this month off the coast of Vancouver Island. It's called a swarm. Obviously, when we heard about it, we wanted to know, like, should we be concerned? What caused this? It's always good to talk earthquake preparedness, too. So Dr. John Cassidy joins us. Dr. Cassidy is a senior research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. Thank you so much for being here. You're most welcome. Thank you, Simi. What do we consider to be a swarm of earthquakes? Um, a swarm is is interesting. It's a, a grouping or a cluster of earthquakes in the same location, in um, sometimes over hours, sometimes over days, sometimes over um, maybe a week or more. Um, but there's no obvious main earthquake. So typically, what we would see is an earthquake followed by aftershocks. And there can be a lot of aftershocks, but they're much smaller um, and they drop off with time. Whereas a swarm is just a group of earthquakes in the same area with 
you know, similar magnitudes, similar um, location depth. So it's just sort of a earthquakes that just continue, but it's uh, it's different from a regular main shock aftershock sequence that we typically see uh, here and, and around the world, in fact. Okay, so then why do we think these happen? Um, well, it's a, that's a good question. Um, they they tend to happen in very active regions, sometimes in volcanic regions. And of course, off the west coast of, of Vancouver Island, we have uh, very active plate tectonics. So we have um, ocean plate that is being created at undersea volcanoes, a ridge of undersea volcanoes offshore. We have plates that are then sliding past one another, colliding uh, so we have all of those elements. We have the undersea volcanoes. We have thin oceanic crust. We have um, plates that are colliding, moving apart, and sliding past one another. So essentially everything that can happen in terms of plate tectonics happens just off of our coast, off of Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii. Okay. And so are, is this unusual, or do we see this fairly often? Well, um, this type of tectonic setting, which is really complex, it's it's a lot more complicated than California, for example, with you know with the San Andreas Fault. Um, it, it's a really complicated setting, and there are other parts of the world that have that are similar that have all of these types of plate motions. So, parts of Japan, parts of um, uh, Chile and Mexico. So. Areas around the Pacific Rim where the same thing's happening, where ocean plates are being formed, where they're colliding, where they're sliding past one another. Um, so they're, you know, they're really active regions. And, and uh, these swarms off of Vancouver Island, we see them um, every few years. There's typically a, a, a swarm of events that would last for, for days or, or maybe a week or more. We're, we're about a week into this one, and um, it, it is quite a bit slower now, but we've recorded nearly 100 earthquakes uh, in that location over the past month, and more than half of those in the past week. Hmm. So what do we glean from that then? So what do we expect to learn from this? Well, um, the, ma- the main thing is that it really reminds us this is an active region. These um, these tectonic plates are moving. They they move at about the same speed that your fingernails grow, uh, which isn't isn't really fast. But over a lifetime, it's a few meters of of movement. Um, so it really reminds us that this is an active region. We see earthquakes here every single day, um, and we've seen large earthquakes in the past. We've seen um, in the offshore region some of the world's largest earthquakes. So. Excuse me. Um, scientifically, we can learn from these earthquakes because they're so well recorded with the new instruments that are on the seafloor with Ocean Networks Canada on land. So we have good recordings of these earthquakes. We can learn about how waves travel, how shaking varies across the region, uh, and we can learn more about those offshore faults and what's happening. So uh, in terms of the science, we can learn a lot. Um, but in terms of preparedness, it really reminds us of the importance of uh, knowing what to do when the ground shakes. Well, that's the thing I was thinking. Even if we talk about this, uh, it is good to kind of put that in people's minds, right? Because we, I feel like we tend to take this for granted that, oh, yeah, we hear about earthquakes, but are they really going to impact us? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's easy to forget about the big ones because they don't happen 
uh, very often, but they do happen. And being prepared um, is, is really important. So things like the ShakeOut drill coming up in October, ShakeOut BC uh, website, you know, checking with your local emergency management organization, uh, checking with um, a prepared BC. So there's, there's a lot of great information out there. There's a lot of really simple things that, uh, that we can all do to be better prepared for future earthquakes. Yeah, Dr. Cassie, is there something that you wish we would all do to be better prepared or something that you wish that we all knew? Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of simple things in these websites like ShakeOut BC will have uh, great information, but simple things, having uh, a flashlight and an extra pair of shoes under your bed because that's one of the rooms where we spend, you know, most <laughs> most of our time, eight hours a day or, uh, or roughly. Um, so, the odds are that that's where you'll be when the ground shaking starts, when an earthquake happens. And um, so being able to move around your house um, or your apartment with um, without stepping on broken windows or broken glass, um, so having a flashlight and a, and a pair of slippers uh, under your bed, not having heavy objects uh, that are going to fall onto the bed, um, you know, pictures, uh, making sure that heavy cabinets aren't going to fall over and, and block your your escape from from any room in your house. So, you know, securing items to walls, a uh, lot, lot of really simple things that um, that we can do. Having an emergency kit. Uh, that thing that you just mentioned, though, about the shoes under the bed, and like uh, I've never, nobody's ever suggested that before. But the way you just described it makes perfect sense. Yeah, uh, the most likely thing during an earthquake is. Um, Things are going to fall off shelves, you know, windows might break. Um, there'll be glass all over the place. Kitchens are always a disaster after after earthquakes. So um, that old pair of shoes, instead of throwing them out, put them under your bed and you have them. Uh, and having a flashlight there so you can move around and um, and check on everyone. Okay, but in the meantime then, with this swarm of earthquakes that is happening, Dr. Cassidy, what do you think we should keep in mind? Uh, well... You know, the the most likely scenario is this will just drop off like other ones have over over the years. So, But it really um, reminds us that this is an active earthquake zone. So it's something that uh, we forget about. And, uh, you know, swarms like this or other little earthquakes that we feel remind us that this, this is an active region. We've seen large and damaging earthquakes in southwestern British Columbia over the years. Earthquakes Canada has... Uh, website has great information and, and descriptions of of those earthquakes that have happened in um, 1918, 1946, big magnitude seven earthquakes on here on Vancouver Island. All right, we'll keep that in mind and get that earthquake kit ready. Dr. Cassidy, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you, Cindy. That is Dr. John Cassidy. He's a senior research scientist with Natural Resources Canada, talking about this ongoing kind of earthquake event that is happening off the coast of British Columbia. It's a swarm of earthquakes that they are studying right now that have continued for days. But just the advice there, too, like put that pair, old pair of shoes and a flashlight under your bed. So simple. And yet, you know what? If you need it, you, you won't believe that, how great this is. You actually had this, how handy that came in. Uh, stuff for us to think about, yes, as we head towards that great shakeout, which is coming up in um, October, as a matter of fact. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about a program that the Vancouver Police Department is putting out there, and this is to help low-income seniors. So what are they doing and how important will it be? We're going to find out right now. Constable Tanya Vicentine is with us now, Media Relations Officer for the VPD. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Now tell me about this. You're providing phones, cell phones to low-income seniors? Yeah, that's right. So many seniors do live alone. It makes them, uh, you know, especially vulnerable during times of emergencies or medical distress, uh, especially if they don't have any family or, or neighbors around them. So um, we are offering seniors uh, facing financial hardships these free 911 phones. And what that means is basically this phone can only dial 911. Uh, there's no data, no texting, no internet capabilities. It's simply just to call 911 in a time of need. Okay, so what kind of a difference do you think this is going to make? So, I mean, we've seen it um, most recently with the heat wave. Um, uh, that seniors just were, um, you know, there were safety concerns for them. So whether they're, a lot of seniors do have landlines, I will acknowledge that. But when they're out and about, whether they're, you know, having a medical emergency or they're in uh, a time of distress or they're, they're, they fear for their safety, this gives them the opportunity to call us when in other times they may have not. Okay, so is this something that you had feedback on, Constable Vicentine? Did you hear that this was or thought that this was something that was just like a missing gap? So this actually came from the idea of of one of our officers working on the street. Um, He noticed, I guess, going from call to call to call that he was attending more calls with seniors who may have disclosed to him that they didn't feel like calling police or they didn't have the means to call police when they needed us. So this was just his initiative. He um, went to the Vancouver Police Foundation and asked for um, their help in funding this, and he got the grant, and he was able to do this. So we have a limited number of phones. It's kind of like a we're just kind of testing it out. But the day one yesterday, when after we announced it, we had um, a whole lot of people coming to our police station, and so it was really great to see that. That's nice. I mean, it might be something that we actually underestimated. Yeah, for sure, could be. So how does this work then? How do people get this? So all you can do is come to our public information counter at 2120 Camby Street. Just provide a piece of ID at the front counter and you can get your phone. Okay. Now, what kind of phones are these? Like how good are they or what do they do? Yeah, so the features on the phone are, they're basically a flip phone. They're an old school flip phone. They're quite large compared to, I guess, an iPhone with large keys and actual buttons, a uh, large screen. So it's really, um, it just makes everyday use easier. Um, there's a 14-day standby time, which means the phone doesn't need to be charged every day in case uh, the person forgets. And it's there's a, it's an easy way to charge. It's a USB that can go in either way, either angle. Um, so it just it simplifies it for the user. Okay. Well, it sounds like I would want one of these phones. I mean, that makes it very easy for people to use, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So can you see this expanding then? I feel like a lot of us haven't thought about that, about the people who we think 911 is so accessible, but that's not always the case, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. I mean, we do have a program here at the VPD. We do offer uh, 911 calls to victims of crime in certain situations. So this is something we have done in the past. It's not so public, but we do offer that. But now we're kind of expanding it to seniors. And like I mentioned, during the heat wave or uh, we saw during the pandemic, there was a lot of hate, hate crimes, especially on um, seniors, members of the Asian community. So uh, 
just, I guess, over the years, things have evolved. Um, we also know anecdotally that seniors sometimes don't want to bother the police. They feel like, oh, this is this is not for me, or they don't have the means to call police. So all of these factors combined, um, we're hoping that this makes it more accessible for them or easier for them and more inviting for them, kind of giving them the message like, listen, we want you to call us, whether uh, you think it's an emergency or not, call us. So we're also hoping your listeners can pass this on to to people in their lives, seniors in their lives. And if you know anybody, tell them to come to our police station. I will tell them that for sure. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you, Simi. That's Constable Tanya Vizentine, who's a media relations officer for the Vancouver Police Department. So they are providing these um, phones, they're free mobile phones to low-income seniors to make sure that they have access to 911 in case of emergencies. Now, these are phones that can pretty much only call 911. They are kind of old flip phones and bigger buttons, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But you can get them. Uh, They have a 14-day standby time. They have large, easy-to-read keys. Like These sound like they will be very useful for quite a few people. So as you heard uh, Constable Vizentine say there, all you have to do is go to the public information counter at 2120 Camby Street. Uh, you need to provide some identification, you know, talk to them about it and what you know, have questions about it, talk to them. But they are hoping that this actually provides a bit of a lifeline for people who, as she pointed out, might be too afraid to call 911 sometimes or just think they're going to be a bother. And in fact, it would not be a bother at all. Uh, police want to hear from you. So great little program. We'll find out more about that and see if they see if it really does come in handy for people. And yeah, pass the word on to somebody you know who might find that very useful to have with them. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about housing this morning, shall we? It's been a really hot topic at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention this week. Lots of information, lots of numbers, lots of data that's been coming out that really illustrates the scope of the problem that we are facing here. For instance, we've heard that Vancouver is the eviction capital of Canada. As I said, no surprise to anyone who's tried to find or keep a place to rent in this city. But why is that? What are the reasons? Well, Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry has been at the convention listening to these conversations about housing, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Morning, now, I know that you were at the, uh, the information that was provided yesterday, a lot of data that came out. Was there anything that surprised you about the situation here in Vancouver? Well, the, uh, the Stats Canada Chief Statistician, uh, gave a presentation that basically uh, indicated that Vancouver is the eviction capital of Canada, which may not come as a surprise to most. But what was surprising to me was the rise in the number of evictions for uh, landlord use, which is now at 26% of all evictions. So one quarter of all evictions are for landlord use. And we've seen uh, a pretty steady increase in it. Certainly in, at my office, I've, I've been getting a lot of correspondence about folks. I, I talked to uh, MLA Spencer Chandra Hobart about the same issue, and he's seeing a huge increase. And certainly from uh, tenant advocacy groups, we're seeing a huge increase in evictions for landlord use, which is is a stipulation under the uh, Resident Tenancy Act that allows uh, <clears throat> evictions uh, without cause. Um, and we see maybe a correlation between that and the changes to the uh, Tenancy Act around uh, rent evictions. So uh, the provincial government did add some changes, and uh, this was addressed in a conversation with uh, Minister of Housing, Ravi Callan. Oh, okay. Earlier. Interesting. So do you think that this is a bit of a loophole then? I mean, it, I, I can't definitively say, but it would appear to be, yeah. 
yeah. So I think people are, are recognizing that they can no longer do the sort of renovation route, which has, you know, been a big issue for folks in the past where we see, um, you know, cosmetic renovations as grounds for evicting a tenant. And obviously, once you've evicted a tenant, the rents can change. And, and in today's market, we know that a lot of older older unit rents that were, you know, less than $1,000 could be turned over and rented for up to $3,000. So there's kind of an incentive there. And we've definitely seen this sort of emergent pattern. Right. Because we've heard these stories anecdotally, as you pointed out, too. And we hear it all the time, right? People saying, oh, six months later, I saw it up for rent, even though it was supposed to be for landlord use. What kind of accountability is there for this, Councillor Fry? Like, what can somebody do if this happens to them? Um, you know, I mean, and, and this is the challenge, and this is sort of some of the questions I asked of the minister. Um, it, it, it it does fall under the Resident Tenancy Act and the, the Resident Tenancy Board for sort of adjudication. A lot of folks don't realize that they have rights under the, uh, the RTA to appeal these sort of evictions. Um, and, and, and legitimately, a lot of them might be actually people moving into the units or moving their children into the units because those are are completely allowable under the act. But where we see this sort of, I've I've got one building in in South Vancouver that I've been communicating with and they've had four uh, renovations for landlord use uh, within a year, which seems somewhat incredulous because apparently the landlord is not moving their entire family into the building. So uh, there are uh, avenues under the the Residency Act to appeal to the RTB that being said, the staff are a bit overwhelmed, and there's there's a, there's a lot of demand, and there's not a lot of resource there. What do you think happens? Like, what are the what are the ripple effects of having this happen when when somebody gets one of these notices, and if it's happening over and over, as you said there, like what happens to the people who get one of these notices? Well, uh, and that's the the, the the huge challenge because. The reality is, is a lot of folks who are living in, in units and, and paying rents that are, you know, we, I'm typically talking to folks who have been in, in the same unit for 20 years or more and more, and and they there's nowhere to go, there is no equivalent rent uh, that they can find out in the open market. So mm-hmm. it, it is a big, big, big challenge, and um, and it, it, it we see it impacting us on, you know, the nature of like. Uh, homelessness and 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 just housing insecurity. So, what do you think the city can do? What kind of role would you like to see the city play in this? Well, we we did have uh, a, a renters' office at the city of Vancouver that was going to support a little bit more resources for as far as folks being able to access uh, help and supports. But the reality is is that uh, we don't have that at the city of Vancouver anymore, and this is sort of provincial jurisdiction, so we're looking to the province to uh, do, do a bit more and maybe tighten up some of the rules around the, the Residency Act to maybe find where the opportunities are uh, to be a little bit more thoughtful about what, um, how we define tenant, uh, sorry, landlord use for, for a tenant relocation. Like, how do we make think, them prove that they're actually going to do this? Yeah, so maybe there's there's, there's a little bit more of a time constraint to it. Uh, there's a little bit more investigation uh, that we're resourcing folks better. But the reality is, is a lot of people don't know that they have resources at all. And, and that was the, the function of the city of Vancouver's renter's office, which that has since been sort of uh, removed from our programs, which is 
bit frustrating for me, but that's, that's where we're at. Uh, so hopefully we can we can find opportunities to educate folks a little bit more about their rights and, of course, find opportunities for the province to actually uh, enhance some of the rules around around landlord use for tenant evictions. Right. Did you get the sense that that might be coming? I know the housing minister has been spending time at the UBCM this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, uh, I mean, it, it's, there is some legislation coming, I think, in the fall, and, 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 and the minister was, 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 you know, somewhat reserved in, in, in commenting on that, of course, because it is pending legislation. But, uh, you know, like I say, I was talking to MLA's Spencer Chandra Herbert, and they're seeing the same pattern. Uh, so it's it's something that the province is alive to, and we're recognizing that this is an emergent issue for folks uh, who rent in the, in the city of Vancouver, and indeed across all of British Columbia. So, you know, we, we recognize that 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 the way things are going, uh, the nature of displacement for folks who are renting, uh, and relative again, relative to the median income in, in Vancouver and BC. Not just not sustainable. Are, yeah, not sustainable the way it is. No, 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 for sure. Kelter Fry, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. It's Pete Fry, uh, Director of the Union of BC Municipalities and Green Party Vancouver City Councillor, talking about the housing issues that they have been learning about. So yesterday, the Chief Statistician for Statistics Canada had a seminar at the UBCM. Pete Fry was there. And he said what he learned, he was surprised to hear this. Vancouver is the eviction capital of Canada. That doesn't surprise a lot of people. But the biggest reason as well for these evictions is landlord use. That's the number one reason that people are given for evictions in the city of Vancouver, that, which means that, oh, you have to leave because I, the landlord, the person who owns this, needs this suite. I'm moving in or my family is moving in. But how many times have we heard, and maybe you've had this happen to you, is that a few months later, the former renter then sees the unit up for, up for rent again, but at a much higher rent. And it has now become so prevalent. And isn't it interesting that Pete Fry said that this kind of coincides, uh, the increased prevalence of this coincides with the fact that the province then closed the rent eviction loophole, which used to be the number one excuse as to why people were given eviction notices. And now it's landlord use. Can you imagine four units in one building in South Vancouver getting the same landlord use eviction notice? What, how many places is a landlord going to move into? How much family does this person have? So yeah, is it being abused, do you think? Is that a loophole that needs to be closed? I know some landlords will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that. That's not fair to landlords. All right, well, what's where's the balance on that? This is Mornings with Simi. When it comes to having your personal information sold, you probably think about, you know, being online, having it happen somewhere online or some tech company doing that. It's what we assume, or maybe it's what we've become accustomed to. But Canada Post? Since when does Canada Post sell our personal information? Well, the Federal Privacy Commissioner says that's exactly what Canada Post has been doing and says they are breaking the law while doing it. What's been happening? Well, Canada Post has been taking the information from the outsides of envelopes and packages and then using it to build marketing lists that it can then sell or rent to businesses. Did they ask for permission to do that? No, they did not. And the Privacy Commissioner says that is a violation of the Privacy Act. 
Well, let's talk about the repercussions of this with Dr. Anne Kavukian, who's a three-term Privacy Commissioner of Ontario and Executive Director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. What did you think about when you heard this? I truly, I was so appalled. I couldn't believe it was true that Canada Post, a federal government agency, would be taking our personal information that clearly was not intended for marketing. We put the information on the cover of a letter uh, that we're mailing to someone so that it will arrive at their residence. And we indicate that it's from this residence, my residence. That's it. And they think, Canada Post somehow thinks it's acceptable to use that information and sell it to uh, marketing programs, etc., and, and the, use it for online shopping and a variety of marketing purposes. Completely unacceptable. It's ridiculous. Like, we in no way give them permission to do this. Like, if I want to get emails, even I have to kind of give permission for that now. How, what was Canada Post's response for this? Well, they... They should have known this. They said, well, you know, uh, given the way the mail has been decreasing, use of the mail in the last few years, because everyone's going online, we needed some additional means of, uh, you know, raising our, our income. Too bad. That's You do not have the authorization. You have bra- broken the Federal Privacy Commission Act. You have broken the Canadian uh, Privacy Act, Section 5. It's a violation. And you haven't even obtained consent or tried to obtain obtain consent from Canadians. It's completely being used for marketing purposes by Canada Post without any authorization. So are they going to change this? I think they said they're putting a hold on it. Um, Of course, the federal commissioner recommended that they stop this. But that's the problem. The federal commissioner doesn't have order-making power. So he can't say to Canada Post, you must stop this now. When I was uh, Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, I had order-making power. So I could say to organizations who are breaking the law, you stop, you stop right now. He doesn't have the authority to do that, which is why we've been trying to upgrade our federal privacy laws for like 20 years or something. It's taking forever and still hasn't happened. So that means that targeting is happening. Marketing lists are being prepared by Canada Post, um, targeting attributes such as marital and family status, ethnicity, interests, and hobbies. Okay, this is the outrageous part about this, is that there is no contract that even implies this. Like, you don't, uh, like, you're, you've already, the contract that you have with Canada Post is, as you pointed out, I'm sending this, you're delivering it. End of story. Nothing. Nothing is in place like that. Um, and, and that's what bothers me so much is that Canada Post is somehow arguing that it has the per- permission from Canadian households to deliver the, the mail not only to the address, but to, to you know, they, they said it would be ridiculous to ask for additional permission to deliver their mail. Well, excuse me. It's additional information to give their inf- their mail information to marketers. That's not ridiculous. Well, the mail is That's private. Essential. Like you can't open some of the mail is, is is private. Totally, totally private. And this is unbelievable that they're somehow trying to argue against it. Um, so 
I just urge the federal commissioner to continue to press on making them stop this, even though he can't order them to do so. Okay, here's my concern as well, though, Dr. Kavokin, is do we, as the Canadian public, take this serious enough? Because we're so used to having all of our information being sold already. To file complaints to the Federal Privacy Commission, the more complaints he has, the greater the authority he'll have. Um, Ideally, he can take this to court if he wants and uh, try to, you know, do something uh, based on the completely inappropriate use of this, our mailing data. But have we become numb to this, do you think? I mean, you you deal with this, you uh, see people's reaction. Like, are we just like, yeah, whatever, one more person selling our information? Unfortunately, that may be the case, but I'm not willing to go there. You don't stop fighting, no matter what the odds, and I know the odds are getting tougher, Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. We cannot give up on that. You want free and open societies? We have to preserve our privacy. Do not give up on privacy. Okay, well, that's good advice for people. How do we fight back against something like this, though? Uh, File complaints with the Federal Privacy Commissioner's Office. And next time you see your mailman, I mean, if you happen to, tell them this is completely unacceptable. You do not have my authorization to use my personal information in this manner. If enough people complain, this will get up to the uh, higher-ups. Okay, so that's the only way then, is for people to actually complain, make their voice heard on this. At this point, unfortunately, yes, even though it is against the law, the federal commissioner does not have order-making power to make it stop. Okay. Like when it comes to social media companies doing this or online companies, like I guess that's the stuff that's buried in the terms and conditions, right? It's down there somewhere. You've got to search for it, unfortunately. Um, so I tell everyone who goes online or anywhere, take a look for it and say no. So you don't want your information used for any purpose other than the primary purpose of the data collection. Right. I think we need to get angry about this, though. Yeah. You know, we don't get angry enough. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure as always. That is Dr. Ann Kavukian, who's a three-term privacy commissioner of Ontario and now the executive director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, talking about your personal information. We see, we know that online, if you go online, that internet companies do this. We know that social media does this, right? That's the whole terms and conditions thing. You've checked the box about, okay, fine, send me your marketing emails, or you've unchecked the box, or you've unsubscribed. You do all those things because there's certain companies where you expect they are going to be selling your information. But you don't expect Canada Post to be selling your information, essentially compiling a list on who is sending you mail and then selling that to other businesses so that businesses can get an idea of the kind of stuff that's coming to your house or my house and then they can target us with even more of that same stuff. That is not what Canada Post is even allowed to do. The Federal Privacy Commissioner says, no, you do not have the right to collect that information. It is against the law. It violates the Privacy Act. And you know what Canada Post said? Uh, we'll think about it. Uh, we'll, we'll stop it for now, but we think we're allowed to do it. So we'll, we'll just think about it right now. And as Dr. Kavukian pointed out, the only way for you to say, I don't like this, is to file a complaint about it. It's almost like they know we've kind of given up when it comes to that fight about our personal information. And we want to weigh in. I mean, does that offend you? Kind of offends me. I'm thinking, I want Canada Post to mail me a letter and deliver my mail. End of story. I don't want Canada Post taking any other information about me from that. That's it. 
End of story. What about you? Does that offend you? We think Canada Post? No, don't do that. Or have you given up on your personal information too? Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. You saw a sticker at a traffic intersection that told you how many crashes that had been there in that intersection in the past year. Do you think that would make you more careful? It's what a local advocacy group is hoping because it's what they are doing, actually. So let's find out more about it. Jade Buchanan joins us now, a member of Vision Zero Vancouver. Jade, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this campaign. What's going on? So we've been uh, distributing stickers that folks have been putting up to highlight some of the more serious um, traffic violence that happens in our city in some cases using statistics that are readily available around how many accidents happen at a certain intersection, and in some cases um, memorializing victims who have been killed at that intersection. So how do you pick these intersections then? Uh, We don't actually pick them. The data is out there and and anybody is welcome to put one up. Uh, There is uh, lists that come out every year of the most dangerous intersections in Vancouver, but it's it's a long list. There's, um, you know, a significant number of fatalities on our roads. That's very true. So what do you hope people get out of that? If they, if you're stopped at an intersection and you see this, what do you want people to do? We've learned that, you know, most people agree the government, provincial and municipal government should be acting on the goal of Vision Zero. And the goal of Vision Zero is to put an end to um, serious injuries and fatalities arriving from arising from car crashes, but we're not seeing a lot of action. And there are people within governments we know from speaking with them that they want to take action, but they just feel there's not a political will. So this is just basic advocacy where we're trying to make people aware that this is a real problem. This is a problem that other cities have addressed in very serious ways and have seen, you know, incredible results. Um, and that if we do not accept this as a fact of life. We can make it not be a fact of life anymore. Oh, and what way do you think we need to do that? Like, what are these serious ways that other other jurisdictions have approached this? Yeah, you you spoke of of people being more cautious, and that's sort of the the bare minimum. What we need is changes in our transportation systems. The things that work at kind of a general level, for some examples, are um, not allowing right turns on red. You can think of how inherently dangerous it is that you as a driver are looking to your left for the car that might be coming towards you while somebody might be walking, coming from your right. You're being expected to look in two different directions when you can turn right on red. Um, Speed is also an incredibly important factor. It's the leading cause um, of in-car accidents. And the distinction between going 50 and going 30 is life or death for a pedestrian. If you are hit at 50, you have about a 10% chance of surviving. If you're hit and the car is going 30, you actually have closer to a, a 90% chance of surviving. People are terrible in intersections, though, aren't they, Jade? Like, we've got red light cameras, we've got all of this stuff, and it just seems like people still don't get the message. Yeah, and so it's a good point. We don't want to rely on people getting the message. Um, if you speak to you know traffic engineers and you say, how can you solve this problem? They can tell you exactly how they can engineer an intersection to make it significantly safer. Some of those things might include, you know, the banana barriers we've been seeing out there, 
um, including things like curb bulges that stick out more into the intersection to shorten the amount of space that a person has to cross. Um, I can kind of go on about the different measures, but cities like um, you know Oslo, for example, have achieved years where they've had zero deaths of pedestrians, cyclists, and zero deaths of children. Um, I can compare our numbers where in you know, BC, about 300 people are killed in car crashes every year, um, and actually about more than 200 of those are in the car. Uh, we see about 4,500 kids injured every year and about 22 killed. Is it the speed, do you think? Is that what statistics tell us? Or is it, are we not paying attention? Is it, like, what is it about us? Yeah, um, speed is a, is a big factor. If we could get everybody going 30, it would be a, we would see a significant decrease in that. Attention is hard. Um, you can't rely on people to be perfect and have perfect attention. But if your streets are designed in such a way that there's far less interaction between cars and people. And when there is, the cars are going at safe speeds, then you're not relying on people having perfect attention. You know, Jade, I'm so interested in this topic because you've, you've hit on a bit of a bugaboo of mine, and that <laughs> is intersections and people running lights. It, it's an epidemic out there of people. It's almost like when people see it yellow turn red, they think that's when you hit the gas as opposed to hitting the brake. Yeah, I, we've, it's it's hard to be a volunteer in this space and be constantly aware of the issues. It sometimes takes the fun out of going for a stroll or for a bike ride. Because um, when you start to pay attention, you see that kind of behavior. But you also, when you start to understand some of the engineering solutions, you start to you know pull your hair out that they haven't been implemented to uh, stop that kind of behavior in its tracks. So when you volunteer for this, do you see this frustrating behavior out there? Like you go out to monitor intersections? We have uh, we have a radar gun as well, and we've brought it out to different spots where we know the speed limits have been lowered, but the roads haven't been changed at all. And we know that if a highway, if a street looks like a highway, people will treat it like a highway. If it looks like a, a that's so true. A, yeah. <laughs> if it looks like a pedestrian friendly environment, they go much slower. It doesn't matter what the sign says. Oh, you know, my feeling is they're going to go faster regardless. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter if there's 10 crosswalks in a row, right? They're still going to go as fast as they can, even in between those crosswalks. So is this is this the first step then, Jade? Is you put these signs up and you say, hey, there have been 10 crashes here this year. You want people to stop and think about that. We want people to 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 know that this is a solvable problem. And so when I heard Councillor Fry uh, earlier, he, he, he's been a really good advocate for Vision Zero. But if he's knocking on your door at the next election, ask him about it. Tell him it's important to you. If your neighborhood feels unsafe or your workplace feels unsafe, contact politicians about it, whether it's members of your city council or your provincial government. They need to know that there is a serious political will to put an end to this. All right, we'll see what happens. Jade, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's Jade Buchanan. Jade is a member of Vision Zero Vancouver. They are an advocacy group that they are launching this campaign, uh, an awareness campaign, and they're going to use these strategically placed stickers because they want you to stop and think about the number of traffic crashes, many of them fatal, that are happening in certain intersections. So they've kind of sourced the information from ICBC data about where these busiest intersections are, where the most crashes happen, and they're going to put these stickers up in the intersection to let you know. Uh, and they'll be stark about it. They said X number of people you know, have died here this year. Uh, there have been this many car crashes this year. But here's the question that I have for you is, 
would you change your driving behavior based on that? If you were stopped at this intersection and you see a sticker that tells you that, you know, two people have died in this intersection, there have been this many crashes here this year, would you go, oh, geez, I better be more careful next time I come through this intersection? My feeling is that people... I don't know what goes out of our heads when we're driving. Like, do you stop and think about that? Like, there are signage that tells you which intersections even have a red light camera, that you're going to get a ticket if you speed through this intersection or if you run this light. And I know because we've talked about it on the show before, so I'm always cognizant of, oh, yeah, this intersection here, and oh, there's a sign for that. And so I try to stop there. But yet your impulse is still to try to run that red light. I see so many people doing it. And I got to tell you, running lights is my personal, personal pet peeve when it comes to traffic these days. People have all sorts of ones, right? Like, uh, you know, my husband's big one is people who don't use their turn signal. Oh my goodness. He gets himself so worked up about people who can't use their, or don't, won't use their turn signal. But for me, it is people who run red lights. And I like to play a little game. I like to slow down and stop at the light and then count how many cars will still go by me to run that light. Do it today and you'll see. It is an epidemic out there. So will stickers stop people from doing that? Will you pay more attention if they tell you, hey, this is a high-risk intersection? I don't know. I don't know what it takes to get through to people out there on that, but I certainly welcome your rant about your traffic pet peeve. Why not? I just had mine. You can email yours to me, simi at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. I mean, I applaud the sticker campaign because, hey, anything to make us think about slowing down or just being more careful is a good thing question is, will people out there, will you out there pay attention?